Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. In America, the national parks are practically sacred ground, featuring majestic mountains and geysers that shoot water sky-high. They stand as reminders of our past, hope for the future, and monuments to our restraint. FDR said it best when he said, The parks stand as the outward symbol of the great human principle. And people seem to agree, given their 330 million annual visits. Not all parks are as awe-inspiring as Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, though. But that doesn't mean they aren't just as special. Local parks provide places for people to play, relax, walk our dogs, or exhaust the kids before nap time. The local park is a little taste of nature at the end of the block. There's one park in Portland, Oregon that's just such a destination. Featuring lush greenery in the center of the city's downtown area, the park has a bit of a storied past. According to Dick Fagan, a columnist for the Oregon Journal newspaper in 1948, the park started life as a plot of land across the street from his office. One day, according to him, while looking out his office window, he noticed something going on. Right in the middle of the property, digging a hole, was a leprechaun. Fagan ran across the street and managed to capture the creature, which earned him a single wish for his efforts. Fagan had had one dream his entire life, and this was his chance to make it a reality. He'd always wanted a park of his own, somewhere he could visit during the day when he needed to get away from the hustle and bustle of the newsroom. The leprechaun relented, and suddenly Dick Fagan was the proud owner of a brand new park just for him, except he hadn't specified how he wanted his park to look. Rather than green grass and tall trees, Fagan was left with nothing more than a hole the leprechaun had been digging. He didn't let such a minor inconvenience deter him, though. He planted his own greenery and named the space after his column in the paper, Mill Ends, also known as the odd pieces of wood left over at lumber mills. Fagan took to writing stories about the leprechaun for Portland readers. When the town established an 11 o'clock curfew for all city parks, the leprechaun returned and asked Fagan to publish his threat toward the mayor, daring him to evict him and anyone else from Mill Ends Park after 11 p.m. The mayor kept away, as did the authorities, and the leprechaun was allowed to stay in the park after hours. Sadly, Fagan didn't live to see his little plot of land become an official Portland park in 1976, having passed away from cancer just a handful of years before. But he's remembered each day as visitors pass by the circular park and gaze upon the lone tree standing at its center. Yes, Mill Ends Park only has one tree. That's all it can fit. And of course, it should come as no surprise that the leprechaun who'd given Fagan the land didn't actually exist. He was a fabrication for the newspaper, something to entertain readers. The park, however, is very real, and it sits in the median strip on Southwest NATO Parkway in Portland. It had originally been meant to hold a light pole, which was never installed. Not content to look at a dirt hole in the ground across from his office, Fagan planted flowers in the space and declared the spot Mill Ends Park in his paper. 
Then the leprechaun story was invented to add some flavor to what was nothing more than a mild case of civil disobedience. The tale of Mill Ends Park doesn't end there, though. Spanning no more than two feet across, it was named the smallest park in the world by the Guinness Book of World Records in 1971, and it's held that rank for almost 40 years. It has also become the site of numerous St. Patrick's Day festivities, the day that it was declared as an official park back in 1976. And to this day, Mill Ends Park stands not only as a record-setting memory to one man's silent protest, but also, according to Fagan himself, as the only leprechaun colony west of Ireland. The aftermath of World War II left many European countries in dire straits. Cities had been reduced to rubble, deaths numbered in the thousands, and economies had been reduced to fractions of their former worth. One such country was Italy, which had started the war as Germany's partner thanks to fascist leader Benito Mussolini. After it was captured by the Allies in 1943, Italy switched sides. Italian leaders spent the years following the war purging the country of fascism and rebuilding what they had lost, namely their economy and their reputation among the rest of the world. In 1951, an Italian shipping line based out of Genoa launched what it hoped would be an enormous step in the right direction, a 700-foot-long ocean liner named the Andrea Doria. With the ability to carry 1,200 passengers and another 500 crew members, The Andrea Doria represented the peak of Italian luxury. It boasted three outdoor swimming pools, works of art hanging in the hallways of the first-class cabins, and numerous state-of-the-art safety features, such as 11 watertight compartments and a relatively new technology at the time, known as radar. The Andrea Doria took her maiden voyage on January 14, 1953, from her home in Genoa reaching her New York destination almost two weeks later on January 23rd. The ship went on to make 50 trips over the next four years. But it was on the 51st trip, in 1956, when passenger Linda Morgan's life would change forever. She was traveling with her mother, her younger half-sister Joan, and her stepfather Camille. Camille was a correspondent for the New York Times, who'd been in Spain on assignment. His story was complete, and it was time for him and his family to come home. He, his wife, and their daughters eagerly boarded the Andrea Doria, ready for their return to New York City. On July 17th, they took off on a nine-day journey to the U.S., and with them, over 1,700 other passengers and crew. One day before the end of the trip, at about a quarter to 11 at night, the Andrea Doria spotted another ship on its radar, the MS Stockholm from Sweden. Both ships had ample warning about each other's positions, and adjusted to ensure they'd be nothing more than, well, two ships passing in the night. Except a heavy fog had settled in, and their courses were misinterpreted. Both liners attempted to pass each other on the starboard side, each ship traveling at a speed of roughly 20 knots. By the time the fog cleared, and they were able to regain visual contact, it was too late. They were only a few miles away from each other, Turning such large vessels at that speed and distance apart was impossible without incident. Just after 11 p.m., the Stockholm collided with the Andrea Doria off the coast of Nantucket. 
The blow was fatal to the younger ship, as several of its compartments filled with water and caused it to list over 20 degrees to its starboard side. And such a steep dip proved too much to handle, and 11 hours after the collision, the Andrea Doria sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Now, 11 hours was a long time to sink, long enough for almost all of the Andrea Doria's passengers and crew to make it off the ship and into lifeboats before it went under. And despite its crushed bow, the Stockholm remained afloat and stable enough to carry some of the survivors to New York, leaving the remaining rescue effort to other ships responding to the Andrea Doria's distress call. Unfortunately, though, not everyone made it off the ill-fated liner. Linda Morgan and her family had been sleeping in upper deck cabins 52 and 54, her parents sharing one while she and her sister Joan shared the other. These cabins happened to be in the path of the Stockholm's bow as it crashed into the ship. Camille and Joan died almost instantly. Their mother, with help from a doctor in the next cabin, managed to make it safely aboard the Stockholm, albeit with severe injuries from the collision. And then there was Linda. She was nowhere to be found. In the chaos of the crash, everyone assumed she'd been crushed or had sunk to her death in the Atlantic below. According to initial reports, it appeared that her mother, Jane, had been the only survivor of the party. Linda's father, ABC radio personality Edward P. Morgan, reported the news of the sinking on his show. He knew about the casualties, of course, but didn't mention his daughter, which was probably a good idea. Shortly after the collision, a Stockholm crew member heard a noise coming from an area near the bow of the ship. Well, what was left of it, that is. It was a girl's voice calling for her mother in Spanish. The crew member investigated the sound and stumbled upon a confused girl who was battered and bruised, but otherwise okay. With the help of another crewmate who spoke Spanish, they were able to communicate with her. I was on the Andrea Doria, she said. Where am I now? Linda Morgan had been tossed from her bed aboard the Andrea Doria and onto the MS Stockholm. She'd survived the impact that had killed her sister and stepfather with only a broken arm. Naturally, the press dubbed her the Miracle Girl. Upon learning of her survival, Linda's father returned to his broadcast the next day and gave the world a little bit of good news. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.